Welcome to Design Thinking Games, a fantasy and user experience podcast. Each episode, your podcast hosts, Tim Broadwater and Michael Schofield, will examine the player experience of board games, pen and paper role-playing games, live action games, mobile games, and video games. You can find every episode, including this one, on your podcatcher of choice and on the web at designthinkinggames.com. On my journey in trying to be to, in trying to level up as a game master, I, I enjoy taking Dungeons and Dragons way more seriously than you should. So over the last year, year and a half, the pandemic has really given me a great opportunity to find some writers that I like and read them. There's one um, who I like quite a bit. His name is Justin Alexander. He writes a I think a simple WordPress blog called The Alexandrian. He wrote uh, about this method of designing or developing a story called the three clue rule that I'm totally in love with. And I just wanted to throw in your direction and get your thoughts. You cool with that? Yeah. So what is the... The elevator pitch, the two-sentence version of what's the three-clue rule. Of course, that's exactly like the hardest part here. So I don't – assuming this is an elevator in a large building, here's what I got. The three-clue rule is a technique for solving sort of the narrative problem of how characters get from – one mystery to another without railroading them. Uh, by railroad, I mean specifically, you know, if if we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons, but we can think, I'm sure, of many different uh, systems and games where this happens, even books where the, like, as a player, regardless of your intentions, you are guided directly uh, beat by beat by beat through a story. So like, so like a linear progression, like a linear story. Totally when people say linear, it's linear yeah. narrative or something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, the three clue rule is trying to um, provide just a little bit of framework for folks who want to tell a story that isn't linear. The thing with like whether they're they're developing a sandbox again, like in Dungeons and Dragons or it's some other video game or whatever. You know, suddenly the being able to tell like a cohesive story in a world or a scenario where people can go in any direction they want suddenly becomes an exponentially difficult problem to write for. Yeah, I actually don't know of anyone, and maybe this is just, uh, I'm kind of wondering about the percentage of players, right? But does anyone actually like a linear story that literally just is literally that you walk through and you're not really changing your direction? Like no matter what you're doing, yeah. I mean, you're still going to the same pieces. To me, that makes me think very much of The Last of Us or The Last of Us 2 because essentially in that system and what I call it is like map locking, but essentially oh, is like, like hey, you go through this building and now once you go to this building, you are now in this area that 
has, let's say, a convenience store or whatever, and there's literally only one way out of the building um, uh, or this area. So you're like locked in these 3D zone maps. Sure. And even though it seems like a world, but it, it's literally just like, here's this 3D container. It's like funny walls that you can't climb over or buildings that you can't climb. Right, right. So it's enforced, right? And you ha there's only one way out. Now you can sneak your way through it. You can kill all the people. You can run through and slaughter them or you can snipe them or whatever. But I mean, essentially, you're locked in a map and you have to go to the next. And I think like that's what how the story works the same way. No decisions I make in the story change anything, right? And the biggest thing that people hate about Last of Us is how it forces you or railroads you, mm -hmm. sure. quote unquote, into these difficult decisions. So yeah, yeah I don't know how many people actually like linear. I mean, Apparently there's, I mean, some do, I guess. Right. And so with a linear game, I think you can design like really specific experiences that are um, mind blowing. Perhaps this gives you more opportunity to really like focus on like excellent dialogue or really polished gameplay. Um, you go, you jump in. Uh, I just, you know, I just got out of a D and D game. <laughs> so like I'm thinking about modules and you know, you have a really cool scenario that you can plan the shit out of because you know people are going to get there eventually, right? Um, so I think there's like there's definitely benefit to it. Uh, and of course, you can have a spectrum of good to bad. I imagine Last of Us is way closer to like the good end of the spectrum. That's like the number one thing that people complain about but also love about The Last of Us is because, and I'm sorry, if you didn't not play the game, this is a spoiler alert, <laughs> uh, but essentially in the end of the first game, I won't use the second one because it's rather new, but um, what people love but hate about it is, is that Joel, the main character, has no other option in the end. Like, you can wait it out and the timer goes down and there's a ticker but and nothing ever bad happens. But you kind of have to. You're forced to kill the doctors and save Ellie. You know what I mean? And people hate that. And two's the same way in the end, but I'm not going to kind of ruin it. So half the audience, like, loves being railroaded um, and make forcing the player to make a difficult decision in that, you know, kind of example. Whereas other people hated it because they're like, no, I wouldn't have done that. I, w I wouldn't have done that. Even in the context of the story, I wouldn't have done that, you know? But anyways, in regards... So we know what linear is. What about the three clues? Well, so to design something that's nonlinear, you have a pretty difficult path ahead of you. It, it becomes really difficult to like craft something meaningful around there. Like, So if you want a sandbox, a sandbox with a really good story is way more difficult to do. So the three clue rule is proposing a system, just, and it's just this really kind of principle more than anything, to help guide players from situation to situation without railroading, without pulling them along artificially, right? Like they cannot make any progress whatsoever unless they go do X and, and specifically X. Well, yeah. So is it like clues that are in the world then? Yeah, exactly. And then... So imagine, um, I, I think one of the the examples I really like is uh, like imagine, imagine a Sherlock Holmes uh, story, right? Where, um, where there is a complex. So mysteries are a really good case here, but you know, I, I think we can see that this could apply to beyond that genre. But like, you have some sort of mystery, nay, conspiracy that um, 
requires a lot of deductions to fall into place before you can even like come to that aha moment. Now, what Sherlock himself does is wanders into a room and sees everything there, plucks the correct deduction out of the ether, and is able to kind of like move on. But the reality is, is you know, again, like from like dungeon master to dungeon master. You know, if you create like a similar kind of story where pieces of the puzzle become clear over time, um, the reality is, is like, you know, your players or you as a player are going to miss all of the clues. So the idea here, um, the three clue rule is, is legit this. For any conclusion you want your player characters to make, include at least three clues. And... Um, uh, Justin Alexander actually explains why three, because the player characters will probably miss the first, ignore the second, and misinterpret <laughs> and misinterpret the third before making some incredible leap of logic that gets them where you wanted them to go all along. And then you know it's kind of a it's kind of a joke, but it's the idea that like um, you know if you have the story where to get to point C they have to f- get to point B, which requires they get to point A. That's fine if you want to guide them hardcore into that direction. But if you want to make it feel like a world where they have agency, what if they go to C first? I feel like this is like the ba- like the, literally the thing that every good GM like yes. or DM or storyteller plans for, and then it's always getting railroaded, uh, not railroaded, but always getting kind of thrown off track by the players because <laughs> yes, exactly. they're real and people it goes to something that where it says it's like it needs to so create the parameters in which they can understand which i think is what i'm understanding from the three clue rule as opposed to you know railroading abc like Word. you're saying this when you gave the example of the um D&D module, it makes me think of the Pathfinder and Starfinder modules. Like, in the majority of them, there's a Starfinder one that I'm thinking of right now that I ran recently as a GM, and you kind of crash on a planet, and you're trying to figure out why you crashed, where to go, and what to do, and through a combination of... um, You're in a swamp when you crash, and it's like, well, if you even just physically walk around... Um, you're gonna. Inc- there's an A, B, and C, right? Sure. Three clue rule. Um, one is like this: you see these elementals attacking this weather station, and then this other one is you hear, um, you see these weird electrical portal things that you can kind of investigate. But then another one is then you hear at some point a yell, and you respond to it, and you save a person, and the person ends up leading you to a village of their place but then mm-hmm. by understanding that there's a weird temporal like electric storm going on that's what kind of got your ship crashed and this is how it's affecting the local like wildlife right and so you kind of get the story but it doesn't matter if you go abc or cba or exactly CA, you know yeah no that's a, and, and that's that's probably an example of like how it a well one a well done or well designed narrative takes place and you know someone probably followed whether they called it or not this three clue rule the idea is like okay well instead of saying like instead of imagining a scenario like oh i need these players to deduct from the crime scene you flip it around a little bit and have you say to yourself well i need the players to conclude that the criminal was a large furry 
rabbit. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and and so instead of saying like they're going to discover that it was a large fur- furry rabbit in this specific scenario, you just define what they need to know, and from there, the you know the three clue rule is like well. They found fur on the crime scene, or they talked to a bystander yeah. that saw a, a, some, a big rabbit in a street or something. Yeah, so you drop it in three places. Exactly, exactly. And so and so the way your um, narrative design looks like in the game, um, if you were to like map this out on a piece of paper, is instead of an outline where like first step one, then step yeah. two, you have like a whole bunch of dots, right? Little like uh, um, little nav points on your on your paper HUD or uh, nodes uh, these just kind of like little chunks and the idea is that like wherever you place clues for one conclusion there is evidence for other conclusions from that node but it just shows that like your your story can become really complex in this way you're still guiding the story you're still guiding the players um, but it gives the illusion of agency i think free choice or interaction yeah yeah there is a um it's interesting you said um kind of nodes because i think you know what we're really talking about is like this node or this package right where you're putting these things together and the packages can exist on their own and no matter what time or order they happen in they find one when they go to a museum Mm -hmm. or they get access to another one the next day by a kid they talk to on the street or whatever it is you know, it's this kind of modular thing that can move around. And it specifically makes me think of how we have that kind of in design oh, sure. um, in software, modular design, object um, or components, reusable components. Um, uh, there's also, um, which I don't know if you've heard of it before, but have you ever heard of OOUX or object oriented UX? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and super popular. Yeah, I think it's Sophia Prater. Um, and if I, if Sophia, if you happen to ever, if you ever listen to us, and I hope you do, but if I mispronounce your name, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I actually will say I get your weekly email that comes to me that is literally kind of all the cool applications of object-oriented UX. Um, I actually used it about a year ago. I was working with a client, um, and the client was a school counselor. And he wanted to apply for this grant that kind of gave this demonstration of how a, an app could work to help ease his the job, you know, and, and then, you know, get backing so they could put it and make it offer it free to school systems and whatever. Mm-hmm. Long story short, like how object-oriented UX works is that you have um, these content components that are like main objects, core content, metadata, nested objects. And it's really those kind of pieces. And then you kind of identify the the best example that she uses um, is if you think of like you're using an app that is a recipe app yeah, or, or a cooking app, right? So you have a recipe, that recipe has ingredients. Um, the There's a chef that made this recipe and submitted it. And then there's reviews, you know, which is like users like yelping or giving it four stars or whatever, writing comments. Um, how can we design an experience in such a way that is so organic that a user can kind of fly from recipe to ingredient back to recipe to cook to ratings? You see what the cook rated. I want to see what other things the cook wrote or like um, see what... what if users like mm-hmm. um, this particular recipe or if they gave it their own twist. So I kind of did the same thing with um, 
kids in school, who's their teacher, um, who are their parents, what grade they're in, you know, so you could kind of fluidly navigate around to get what you need. It sounds like it's like the three clue rule plus, plus more clues, some of which are ultra obvious, right? And I think that's one of those, it, the, like Justin Alexander is just sort of making the point that, um, look, your players aren't Sherlock Holmes. So uh, 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 what he calls it is uh, proactive clues. He's actually sort of <laughs> proactive clues, a.k.a. bash them on the head with it. What it makes me think of is honestly like Detroit being human or like heavy rain, which you talked about before, which is like, yeah. hey, something went on here and or, you know, Wolf Among Us. Um, shake down this place. This place was shake down or something like go in there and dude, you can look at everything and interact with everything. Um, and there's probably 40 clues in there, but you really only need to build up the percentage, uh, like three, right. To like, sure. Oh, you don't have to look at it really anything else. I mean, you can, if you want, but well, that's the you, other, you got the gist. That's the other part of the spectrum of this kind of like, you know, world, like narrative design. Right. So it's not just like, Hey, you know, when you come to the conclusion, go straight to it. But in some cases, like, you know, the next beat of the story is like locked either behind some kind of like meter as like, Oh, you have to complete this, you know, 30% before you can continue on, which I think is supposed to simulate, you know, get like figuring it out, <laughs> you know, like getting all the clues that you actually need. Um, but in some cases that's totally locked in app design, right. You have things like, Oh, you can't do this until you do this. Right. Um, and it just, it's guided. It's sort of like this breadcrumb style of design. So you mentioned something to before, maybe in a previous episode or when we were talking about this, gumshoe. Oh. Is, what is that? Yeah, so that's that describes that style of you know game design or or design that is, um, I think like super, like the the three clue rule is supposed to like solve for that, and specifically, I think it was named after all of these. Sherlock Holmes style of games, specifically mysteries as well. Did you have you did you ever play any of those like first person, almost like point and click adventure Sherlock Holmes games? Like Sherlock Holmes and I don't know if this is a real title, but there's like there's one where it's like Sherlock Holmes versus like fucking Dracula and like no really <laughs> and, oh yeah no. yeah oh they get weird. There's like Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper, um, but I mean there's you can play like regular mysteries as well. Um, yeah, I think Lord, the Sierra games, which is the um, that's where Ken and Roberta Williams, that's where, where they it have comes from. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I've done, which actually was a mystery, um, the Colonel's Bequest, the Laura Bow mysteries. She, I think there was two or three of those games. The second one was the, like the Dagger of Amun Ra or something. Sure. But they're a mystery game that is where you're, t you can click on the mouse to move around, but then you have to type in, look open you know closet and then hit enter and then sure so so this gumshoe thing uh, let me read this briefly it's just a couple paragraphs uh for the gumshoe system used uh in games uh by uh, robin d laws decided to get rid of the concept of needing to find clues and in each scene of an investigation there is a clue it is automatically assumed that the investigators will find it so all you had to do was just go there? Yeah, then? it's like in the case of the gumshoe system, um, the need to find the clues and make the correct deduction is handled mechanically with the players committing 
points from their character skills to retrieve, receive increasingly accurate hints, right? The, the gumshoe system is supposed to just uh, describe, which, like, you know, I, I think of, like, when I, I, I love these Sherlock Holmes games, they're fun, but there's no mystery to it because all it is is about finding the part of the, of the room that you're in that is clickable, and suddenly the, you know, the deduction or the clue at least literally becomes... Uh, a line in a dashboard right or in your notebook or something like that and and the game is to take you know three clues and draw the correct lines between them and then you get a deduction and so it's it's i think it's specifically this idea that there are that first you are going to be in the right place at the right time to get the clues but then you can use a mechanical solution to make it more likely that the player will figure it out so yeah so yeah there's a i don't did you ever play like the the king's quest or space quest or police quest or oh yeah any, i played king's quest yeah man classic yeah so um the one that is the colonel's bequest um which is the laura bow series the first one she laura bow is this i think student that it goes to some um She's an English student, I think, but she goes to college somewhere in like Louisiana or something. And then she goes with her friend home for the weekend um, to visit for a family reunion. And they're like, okay. And so they get on a swamp boat and they go out there and they, they have it. And at dinner, like the Colonel, who's the head of the family and it's everyone meets there and it's like Southern gentry, but Uh. then that French Creole kind of, you know, Louisiana Bayou Mystery, Welcome whatever you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, everyone so, damn it. <laughs> yeah. And so essentially, um, he announces that he's writing everyone out of the will, that you're all inv- you know, ungrateful brats and you're all horrible people and he's not giving anyone his money. And that's what happens at the family reunion. Um, you know, good times. Thanksgiving, I guess. Anyways. Uh, and then that night he gets murdered. Oh my um, god, who did it? <laughs> well then, yeah, and so it's yeah, this game where you're clicking around with a mouse and you're investigating and clues and you're trying to search for fingerprints and, and you're eavesdropping in hallways to like and behind it. walls to like see secret conversations. And then there's like all this stuff that happens. The only thing that keeps the momentum going is the clock keeps turning. You're just trying oh. to get to the morning because the police will come in the morning you can't leave because the swamp is risen or, or whatever. Um, and so there's events that you can miss. And so you, it's really hard to get all sides of the stories. And at the end, it gives you this percentage, which I thought was amazing that when I beat the game finally, which was so hard to do, um, it was just like, oh, you got a 45% correct. Wow. So you potentially came to the wrong conclusion? Yeah, so kind of what happens to your point is that you can finger the wrong person. Wow. That's horrible. I said that. I won't <laughs> lose. You can blame the Not wrong sure. person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can blame the wrong person. You can, And then the cops will arrest someone who's, you know, uh, incorrect. And it'll just say this plucky thing that's like, um, oh, it's a shame you didn't find the right person. Or it's a shame you didn't see all the... And it would just give you these sentences at the end of the game that said, oh, shame you didn't spend more time in the parlor or, you know, oh, or shame no. where it would just tell you like, oh, what did I miss in the parlor? And, you know, and then you would, re- and the replay value was crazy. But um, 
in that regards, there's like hundreds of clues. Sure. So what do you think? I mean, I think that's a great example of a game that is kind of this non-linear kind of free clue or gumshoe kind of thing to where you're trying to piece together. Do you have a game that specifically speaks to you in that kind of genre? You got me thinking about all these, again, these Sherlock Holmes games. I played them all. They're all like this. Um, There's an old game. I I need to find it. Um, uh, I kept the CD-ROM, even though I can't play it on anything because it's one of my favorite games of all times. It was was like a Titanic uh, game, um, which was a you know, a whodunit on board the Titanic, uh, the night that it sank. Um, but I love these, um, these style of games, which lets you complete it. Even if you're wrong recently, relatively recently, um, uh, in the last 10 years, (laughs) um, LA noir did something similar, which was a game where you're a detective and you have to read the person's face as you question them and come to a conclusion and boy, I got a lot of them wrong and sent a lot of the wrong people to jail, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's just one of those things which um, is, is fascinating. I have played Gabriel Knight before. I'm not mm. sure if you've played those. We're gonna, we should talk entire episode about Gabriel Knight, specifically the second one, which is like, is it like Gabriel Knight and the Beast Within or Gabriel Knight and the... <laughs> Um, the Beast Within, and I think he goes in <laughs> to visit it. a family in Scotland, and he inherits a castle or something. Uh, uh, I'm, I promise you, I'm not looking this up, but I love this game so much. Uh, yeah, Gabriel Knight um, and The Beast Within is specifically my favorite one, because in, in Gabriel Knight's 1 and 2, uh, 1 for technical reasons and, and 3, I, actually, I meant 1 and 3, and 3 for stylistic reasons, they were both graphic games, but in Gabriel Knight 2... They had this kind of weird um, blend of video game and real human actors that was a thing in the late 90s <laughs> or the mid-90s yeah. or whatever. Wouldn't um, they like video them and record their yeah. audio and then they would turn the video into like an a Like a GIF grade. almost. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. Um, and so like you would see um, actors act out the scene and then, and then they would be these static cutouts of actual photographs. That had slight walking mechanics. It was pretty bananas, but at the time it was great. All that to say, Gabriel Knight goes to Germany uh, uh, because he's either inherited or occupying a, a castle from his family, uh, the Ritters. Uh, I said Scotland. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, it's Germany. <laughs> I, I remember because you had to go through um, like the there's the main like a main through point there is the story of an old Barovian count uh, something like that um, oh, wow. it's it's so I and, and you you have to go to Munich and, and stuff like that um, it's yeah I remember that the Gabriel yeah the Gabriel Knight um, like the first one and the second one and I'm sure there there may be more I'm not, I don't know but the basically Gabriel Knight the first one was that Sins of the Father yeah, I think Sins of the Father yeah and yeah and he's a bookstore and occultist that's what which, he this is, is what yeah. I always thought was cool because he as was a bookstore owner and an occultist who was also a, a private detective right and and he so it's kind of weird but it's kind of cool you know what I mean so you're thinking like Friday the Thirteenth the TV series it's vibe. very Lovecraftian right because often like uh, like Lovecraft characters or in like Call of Cthulhu it's like oh this is a this is a librarian who has a deep knowledge of the occult. 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean, he has interactions with um, New Orleans, and he goes to Lafayette Cemetery mm -hmm. and Pontchartrain Park, I think, and then there's murders, and he's being hired individually, but then he has to, of course, he shows up, and there's cops there, and he has an interaction with the cops, and and there's, it's, of course, there's Voodoo, and it's Mardi Gras. So, yeah, it's it's really cool series. But it, it has a lot of that. Uh, it has a deep mystery, too. You have um, to research, and yeah. don't you take, you get fingerprints at points, and, like, you do, it's, like, a definitely a detective game. I can't game. remember if Gabriel Knight gate-kept you, though. I mean, I think, I, because I, in your in your earlier example with, like, the, the Colonel's Bequest, uh, or in these Sherlock Holmes games, like you can finish them wrong, but you can still finish them. Um, um, you can't proceed in Gabriel Knight. But so I think you like, can't proceed, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, Colonel's Bequest was like the night marches on. Yeah. And so if it's three it. in the morning or four in the morning or two in the morning, whatever, I mean, it's going to happen and you either get information or you don't. And then yeah. at the end of the night, the cops come or at, at dawn, the cops come and they kind of ask you which who did it. And you can choose anyone. You know, um, but in Gabriel Knight, like you kind of every day keeps going by and it's like it, it there's um, I think there's an overall time ticker that something bad can happen. But then every day you can drive around. You can go to the Pontchartrain Park or you can go to Lafayette Cemetery. You can go to the library. You can go to your store. You can kind of do anything. Yeah. And it's just like as the time ticker goes by. I think you just can't do things unless you ask the right questions right. and get the right clues that prompt those questions, you know. I love that. I like um yeah, I mean I, I think uh you know those dark anthology those dark picture anthology games do something similar where you miss. You can like like um there's a couple instances where you miss an opportunity to have this conversation or um or progress in this specific way because you dilly dallied, or you went the other way. Um, mm -hmm. I I love these things. Yeah, um, this makes me think of yeah. the board game Clue. Oh, I know. it's it's Clue's very too. It's a super good game, and there's many versions of it. And I love the movie; is even hilarious. Yeah. But uh, is Murder. even more hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do a Tim Curry. <laughs> what did it? What did you do? Murder. That, I, I, that's nothing at all. <laughs> I don't know. I just remember Madeline Kahn and the line where she's like, flames, flames on the side of my face, burning flames, flames. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but in Clue, you're just trying to find the weapon, the location, you know, and yeah. who did it. And all you're doing is literally asking everyone like a detective sure. would, you know. It's uh, very, but I don't know, this conversation it, just about detective games and this genre and then the different man. ways that you can get through the story, A, but then also if if you're supposed to find something out over the course of the story, like in a detective game, B, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting mechanics. And then having these things set up to where they're like separate or like modular, like we were saying, where they're just self-contained things that you can move around. Um, find out an experience and be wrong if you're trying to figure out something or maybe go to the wrong place and miss something. What a hard type of game to de to design, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, I, think, I, I think that's the point. I mean, this, like to do them well is super difficult. To do a mystery well, hard. To do a sandbox well that guides you through a story pretty hard you know? yeah so like in ux i mean we we think of like findability and discoverability right mm -hmm. so especially on a website or web application or 
um, enterprise software application or whatever, but um, can the user get to where they need to or find where it is, but then can they, by just interacting with the system, organically discover things that help them and they didn't see before? Because, and you just got the user or the player just needs to get in there and start moving, right? That's what they want to do. That's, um, and so, but yeah, but when you apply that model of findability or, and discoverability or that concept to, you know, kind of the narrative in the game or discover or what you're trying to find out in the yeah, game. Like the, that is a discoverability um, uh, thing, right? It's because what you're trying to guide is conclusion. You want the players to discover the next beat of the story. There's probably like a really good rule there too uh, in designing information architecture. And you, you definitely need people to be able to find yeah, information architecture yeah. is it's all its own thing. I mean, it's it's almost like a, we think maybe just navigation and card sorting, right? And card sorting, making dendrograms to this is how you should group information because this is how our user would do it. And then, or t but uh, yeah, it's a lot of nuanced kind of thing. There's probably something there where, um, you know, like, uh, like an application of like the three clue rule to say... Uh, yeah, like information. Well, everyone always says the three clicks, right? Yeah, three. Yeah, exactly. Mean, <laughs> it's like you should be able to get to every part of a website or a web service within three clicks from anywhere within that web service. I mean, that like you know, I, I'm sure it's. I mean, clearly easier say to easier said than done. But that kind of you can imagine if you were to like map this all out on a you know on a two dimensional plane with crime scene like strings like drawn between like thumbtacks that suddenly you know a service of any significant size that adheres to that principle has a lot of potential throughput um which is probably a greatly designed system thank you for listening to the design thinking games podcast to connect with your hosts, Michael or Tim, please go to designthinkinggames.com where you can request topics, ask questions, or see what else is going on. Until next time, game on.